Lesson 12. Success and Your Supreme Wish Success is, next to love, the most vital matter in one's life. For only through successful accomplishment of some nature can civilized men and women be thoroughly happy. Not only does success fulfill a great personal need by aiding in the self-expression of the individual, but through it, he contributes to the progress of the world. These two elements are necessary to the happiness of any normal man or woman. First, the normal individual desires self-expression, but a close second is his sincere desire to help humanity. The latter is not a mere margin which he wishes to dispose of, but a natural demand of his success instinct. Civilized man has two roles and is taught early in life what they are. He is himself and himself is ever his primary consideration. But he is also a part of society, a tiny section in a great mosaic. The average individual thinks chiefly of that little self-section, not so much because he is selfish or narrow, but because his own troubles, problems, and difficulties are so great that he has little time, energy, or thought left over to give to the general pattern. The greatest result of mental analysis is that it is helping the individual to untangle his own troubles. The moment this is done, the rest follows. He awakens to the need of his fellows, his families first, then his friends, next his acquaintances, and in time, the world's. Every normal human being, to be happy, must know that he is the big world. One need not be out in the world like the father who meets the public in his work, in order to have this gratifying realization. The loving mother, the understanding wife in her little apartment, knows that in doing her work, she is directly connecting with the work of the world through her husband, that she is the quartermaster, the Red Cross, and the munition plant behind the lines. Subconsciously, every such woman demands that her man make a success of his work out there in the front trenches, for her sake as well as his own. She does not like to feel that all her efforts are being expended for a losing army. Many more lives than we realize are ruined from a lack of definite connection with the world of real work. The individual himself, and especially if it be a herself, often wonders what is wrong and goes through years or a lifetime without realizing that it is the thwarting of this natural success instinct which is causing the difficulty. The woman who has a home, a husband, or children will find in them full satisfaction of this urge if she happens to belong predominantly to one type. But if she belongs predominantly to either of the other four human types, she will never find complete self-expression in the care of the home husband, or even children. She, like the men of these types, demands direct self-expression. To her, some interest outside the four walls is essential to happiness. Each type always selects the general kind of outside interests most appealing to it. Until recent years, home and church were the only activities in which women could engage and keep the full admiration of the world. Then the Women's Club was born. Various charitable organizations inaugurated and backed almost entirely by women came into being. 
the Prohibition Crusade gave thousands of women an opportunity to emerge and connect with a world cause. Later, the women's suffrage movement, for 50 years, gave the same opportunity to thousands more. It will be interesting to you to note how each of these crusades, churches, charitable organizations, prohibition, and women's suffrage, was headed by different biological types of women, and that the rank and file in each consisted chiefly of women of that same type. The Franny's E. Willard type still predominates in the WCTU. The Susan B. Anthony type still predominates in the National League of Women Voters. Whenever a woman of one of these crusades joined another, it was for the furtherance of her real interest, as, for instance, when the WCTU joined the women's suffrage movement. It did so not so much for women's suffrage, per se, as because it was convinced that women's suffrage would help prohibition. When the Susan B. Anthony type joined the WCTU, it was largely for the purpose of gaining cooperation in the suffrage cause. These facts of type preference were obtained by four years' firsthand observation of thousands of women in both these organizations throughout the United States. Many other surveys show that women, like men, must have self-expression and that each invariably chooses, out of the possibilities in his or her environment, the particular kind of activity always preferred by his type. He chooses more or less automatically because his choice is predetermined by his subconscious. But his subconscious is largely determined by his type. This is because the subconscious mind is the hereditary mind, the mind of instinct with which man is born. What he does after he gets here will affect its content, but not its predominant trends. Every individual of every type, temperament, and combination desires self-expression through some kind of outgoing activity. He will be content, congenial, and constructive only in those endeavors which aid in the attainment of his supreme subconscious wish. If his supreme wish is to spend his life in some particular kind of activity, regardless of its tasks or drudgeries, and if he concentrates on this activity, he will become a genius. But if his choice of a vocation is secondary to his wish, that is, if it is selected only as an adjunct to the wish, an aid and a better of something he desires more, and he gets into such a vocation, he will be in it only one of the many big successes. If he spends his life in a kind of work which calls for traits which he has only in a small degree, he will be mediocre. If his work demands activities that are the opposite of his natural ones, he will be a failure. In each case, the subconscious mind registers feelings for or against certain vocations and for or against specific lines of work contemplated by the individual. Your preference for or prejudice against any line of work is not an accident nor a mystery. It is an emotion based in the subconscious unreasoning feeling that this vocation would help or hinder the materialization of your supreme wish. It automatically votes against everything which would interfere with your life's desires and for everything of any nature, including vocation, that aids and abets them. The child destined to become a genius has, like every other, a supreme subconscious wish. But this wish differs in that of the average child in two things, intensity and content. 
the supreme subconscious wish of the vast majority of men, women, and children is to possess things. The supreme wish of the genius child is to do a certain kind of thing. The average supreme wish, though it may be fired with the deepest emotion of which that individual is capable, is much less intense and furious than that of the genius child. These two lead to the third element, opportunity. As inevitably as the desire and ability to sing, point the songbird instinctively to an opportunity to unburden his silvery throat. So we find that the requisites for the making of a genius are, one, a desire to do a certain kind of thing, regardless of the good or bad consequences. Two, that this desire shall continue the one supreme subconscious wish of his life in comparison with which all else is insignificant. Three, that this supreme wish to do a certain kind of thing shall be so intense as to allow no room for feelings of doubt. These things and these only have invariably differentiated the genius from other men and women. These intense inner urges compel the genius to find opportunity for doing the thing he wants to do. He has no peace until he does it. Once started at it, satisfaction permeates his spirit, saturates his soul. He is at the business for which he was created. He has found himself. In this supremest of human achievements, meeting and working with oneself face to face, the genius forgets all else. Is it to be wondered that it's such enthusiasm produces great things? Other men give but a fraction of themselves to their work and none of their subconscious selves to work they dislike. The subconscious of the genius is in tune with the world. Any man who wants to do a thing with the same intensity, the same selfless, concentrated determination can make of himself a genius. But the average man does not want to do. He only wants to have without doing. He is always expecting to put one over on fate. It can't be done. A genius is one who cannot be kept away from his work. If nothing can keep you away from yours, if you love its toil and drudgery so much it is play, this means that to do this thing is your supreme subconscious wish. Whatever you supremely, subconsciously wish can and does come true, as you will see in the last session of this course. Those who are not geniuses, but the next highest, the big successes in any line, are those whose supreme wish is to achieve a certain goal and who are willing to do anything honorable to reach it, no matter how hard, how humiliating, or how difficult the necessary sacrifices. Such a man or woman will become ultimately a supreme success. For him, as for the genius, there is no question of opportunity. The world is full of opportunity, and he knows it. The trouble with the unsuccessful is not that they lack ability or opportunity. They lack none of the success requisites save one, and that one they can get any moment they want. Willingness to pay the price. The rest of the world wonders and complains at the success of certain well-known people, 
but it might be better learning a lesson from them. We need not concentrate on the same goal, but we can apply the one big secret of their success to higher ones. That secret is the one stated above, a willingness to make any sacrifice necessary to success in a chosen undertaking. To other people, self-complacency, inertia, pugnacity, and a hundred other things take precedence of the success desire. But to this one, there is nothing but the goal. You may kick this man down your front steps, but by the time you have closed the door, you will find him smilingly entering at the back. And the chances are he will leave with your name on the dotted line. This type of person, regardless of race, color, nationality, training, education, or environment, is bound to win. He can bear any humiliation and make any sacrifice for success. A woman who has attained fame and fortune by her own efforts, despite poverty, ill health, ugliness, and other handicaps, was talking not long ago to a small group of old friends whom she had not seen since she was a ragged little girl in the ragged little western town where she grew up. Let me see, Helen. Didn't you wait table once at the Smith Central? I seem to remember seeing you there when you were about 15, asked one of the friends. Yes, she replied. And the summer before, I washed dishes at the Belvedere. And the summer before that, I had a strenuous position as cook, scrubwoman, and maid of all work on a big ranch where 40 men were employed. The rancher's wife had a nap every afternoon and retired at nine. I was up at five and did not sit down from that time until midnight. But I had a wonderful time. I needed that $3 a week to buy books and clothes for high school that fall. When fall came, I got another job, working for my board in a family of seven children. But I had to have an education and thought I was a lucky girl to even get a job. After more mutual reminiscence, one of the women turned to the now successful one and said, did you ever select anything and say you would not do that? Didn't you have powerful aversions to doing some things? There was one, the woman replied, just one thing I always said, even as a child, that I would not do. I said it over and over, and it was, I will not fail. If you care enough about being a success to stop flirting with failure, you will find the work and opportunities necessary to make you one. People miss success because they want to eat their cake and have it too. They won't do this, and they are too good to do that. They are above this and superior to that in their youth. At middle age, they are making excuses. And at 60, many are brought to a choice between those very same menial things and the poorhouse. False pride has cheated more people out of success than any other thing in this world. Pride that is real is too proud to drag you a frazzled failure through this world of opportunity. The content of your own subconsciousness determines your success or failure. To know whether you are going to be a real success, you have but to ask yourself the following questions. One, which of these two attitudes predominate in my mind? The determination against doing certain things or a determination to do certain things? Two, do I keep my mental eyes fastened on the fears of failure or on the certainties of success? Three, do I think more about the obstructions in my pathway 
my troubles, my enemies, my handicap, my disadvantages, my weaknesses, than the goal I hope to reach? The answer to these questions reveals the content of your subconscious as regards success qualities. If you are wasting your strength against things, people, problems, and life in general, instead of expending it for the things you desire, you are running your car in reverse and backing yourself downhill. If your mind has more fear than faith in it, you are going to lose. Nothing on earth can make any man a winner who doesn't believe in himself. Nothing can make you a failure, save yourself. If your subconscious is centered more on thoughts about your troubles, if your talk is full of them, you will have lots more of them, for you are putting into operation a great law, and the law, being immutable, will bring them to you. If you burn the candles of memory at the shrine of your enemies, you are going to make more enemies and further embitter the ones you already have. If you think and talk and act out your handicaps, your disadvantages, your weaknesses, you are planting tares and will reap bigger and bigger harvests of these very things as life goes on. For your subconscious content makes or mars your life. If it is destructive, your life will be destructive. There is no way on earth to avoid it, though millions have tricked themselves into thinking they could. What is in your mind comes out in your life. You can't fool the force that rules the universe. That force decrees that certain causes bring certain results, and they always do. The world calls the successful man an egoist, and he is, but he is seldom a vain egoist. He believes in his own strength and proves he has it. The mediocre and the failures become mediocre and fail because they so overrate themselves as to imagine they can outwit divinity. This is not true of every failure, but of most. You can apply another little test that will tell you whether any man is this type or not. If he is forever expressing envy, jealousy, suspicion, and criticism of the successful, it is but one cause, the resentment of his own disappointed ego. Those who have failed through little fault of their own are never embittered by the success of others. If you are constantly deriding, pulling down, carping at the good fortune of others, if you call every successful person vain, selfish, or a money grabber, wake up to yourself. Realize that this attitude betrays you to every person who knows anything at all about human psychology. It tells him you are only judging others by yourself and that you are assuming they must be all these because your wounded vanity demands consolation. Furthermore, it is a well-known fact that the motives you are in the habit of ascribing to others are what you know your own would be in their place. If you cannot see a man successful without calling him vain, it is because you would be vain in his place. If you cannot see a rich man without calling him mercenary, it is because you are mercenary. If you cannot see another on the pinnacle of fame or fortune without thinking he is insincere, it is because you lack sincerity. All these are indications of your subconscious content. Since your subconscious content determines your success, do you not see why some people have failed? People who have worked and slaved and skimped, yes, and went to church, 
you have got to have the pure air of right attitudes blowing through your mental windows if you want to be successful. Andre Trident says, the genius is always unselfish. In the neurotic, egotism is a mask for a sense of inferiority. He and scores of other mental scientists declare that the successful are less vain, less selfish, less deceitful, less mercenary than the failures. But that is not by any manner of means the most important thing upon which they agree. They have found that it is chiefly because of their more constructive mental attitudes that these people have succeeded. Does this not contain a great lesson for every human being? And does it not prove, after all, that regardless of our particular belief or unbelief, the truth was spoken when it was said, the letter of the law killeth, but the spirit maketh alive. Your subconscious is a great standing army you personally own and control. Through your conscious mind, you are giving it orders every waking moment. If you keep your mind full of destructive thoughts of any nature whatever, you are giving destructive orders to your army, and it will bring to pass in your life the destructive things you order. If you have been getting what you did not want, it was because, unknowingly, you have been giving your subconscious powers the wrong kind of orders. Your subconscious is wrapped and woven around and over and under and through just one thing, your supreme life wish. It has no function save to see that wish gratified. It never tires, never sleeps, never forgets. It never accepts excuses, never takes no for an answer. Never, for so much as an instant, lessens its concentration on the attainment of your one supreme aim. It gathers from every source within your reach all manner of materials for your use in the furthering of this wish, much of which you never suspect until you start to do the thing you want to do. A man has a deep desire for many years to write a certain book. He is so busy with his everyday affairs, it is years before he sits down to start the manuscript. He thinks he has only enough material for a beginning. But he soon finds that through his intense and genuine interest in this subject, his subconscious has gathered data for a dozen books and hands it out to him. He is amazed to discover how deeply he has thought on this subject and how many illustrations he has at his tongue's end. He cannot write fast enough to keep up with his mind, which is bursting with material for the tangible products. But if this man, instead of deeply desiring for years to write a book, only thinks for years that it would be a good idea to write a book, he will find when he sits down that he has almost no material. He will awaken to the realization that he knows very little about the subject and that what he does know is unorganized, chaotic, and distasteful. When one truly desires to write on a certain subject, he has so much material in his mind, he scarcely uses his notes. But when he attempts to write anything against his desires, he gets little from even the most voluminous notes, memoranda, or previous manuscript. These facts and similar ones are known to every person who tries to do anything he has long desired to do. The condition of your subconscious tells, with unmistakable certainty, whether you are achieving about what you are capable of. 
whether you are lagging behind or falling far short of what you have the ability to accomplish. You can go far toward determining for yourself what you are doing by the following tests. First of all, in what are you dissatisfied with yourself? And in what way are you constantly conscious of not coming up to your standards? That standard comes from your subconscious and comes because you are capable of doing the very thing you desire to do. Subconscious discontent is the method taken by your subconscious to register its disapproval. It never disapproves of you for not doing what you cannot do. The fact that you regret not living up to a certain ideal is the proof that you are fully able to do so. The man who can do wrong, weak things without regret is always a far lower grade man than the one who suffers remorse. The one who knows the keenest suffering and self-discontent is the man who is possessed of the highest powers. What is the amount of your ambition? If you have little, it is because you have little ability. Ambition to do a thing comes from the capacity to do it and the demand of that capacity to be brought out and utilized. A thing you have no ambition to do, you have no ability to do. The man who, at 30, has no ambition to be an architect will never be an architect. The woman who, at 30, has no ambition whatever to sing has no singing ability. In this connection, do not confuse the kind of work you really wish to do with the kind of work you imagine would bring you the things you want. For instance, if you really want to sing, for the sheer love of singing and not for its rewards or the things it would bring, you have singing ability. But if the real desire in the bottom of your subconscious mind is not to do the singing for the sheer joy of doing it, but to have the emoluments, honors, glory, fame, or money you think produce for you, you have little and perhaps no singing ability. You will never succeed supremely in any line of work or endeavor which you do not truly, deeply, subconsciously, intensely want to do. What you want to do is have a measurable power to do, and the power is in proportion to the desire. Science has made one other amazing and illuminating discovery. It is that we crave sleep in proportion as we are unhappy, unhealthy, or successful. When we are happy, well, and successful, we can stay in perfect health on much less sleep than we require at other times. When we are disappointed, discouraged, depressed, ill, or humiliated, we want to escape from reality, and the subconscious furnishes the sleepiness necessary to bring temporary peace. Napoleon required sleep wholly according to whether he was winning or losing battles. Three hours were sufficient when things were going well with him. His biographers and all historians of the period degree that immediately following his most successful battles, he often went several days and nights without any sleep whatever. After his exile, when the light had gone out for him forever, and he knew it, he slept from 10 to 14 hours out of every 24. It is no mystery either to himself or to the psychologists why Thomas A. Edison requires less than four hours sleep out of each 24. 
He is doing what he wants to do. He is achieving in real life the things his subconscious self, his real self, desires. He is living life to the full. His conscious and subconscious minds are working in harmony, aiding and abetting each other as they were created to do. There are almost none of the conflicts, interferences, oppositions, misunderstandings, or warfare which split and disintegrate the conscious and subconscious minds of the average individual. This fact accounts not only for the success of Edison, but for that of every successful person who ever lived. No man can succeed through his conscious mind alone, for this conscious mind is so recent an acquisition in human evolution that it is not yet in good running order. The slightest thing sidetracks it. Though far more powerful than we have ever suspected, the conscious mind is incapable of the deep, concentrated activity of the subconscious. It is flighty, erratic, whimsical, superficial compared to the subconscious mind. The man who puts only his conscious mind on a thing gets only surface results. The saving fact here, however, is that the man who constantly turns his conscious mind on anything secures the cooperation of his subconscious also and secures it to whatever degree this thing on which he centers his mind promises to fulfill the supreme subconscious wish. For instance, you may consciously dislike to be a traveling salesman. You don't like the traveling, the constant absence from home and friends which it necessitates. But you can do them all provided your supreme subconscious wish is to be the star salesman in your district. If your supreme wish is not for anything of this kind, especially if your deepest wish is to succeed at something entirely different, you will never get the cooperation of your subconscious mind in your salesmanship, no matter how long you keep it nor how hard you try. And all the years you keep at salesmanship, you will find relief whenever possible in some form of forgetfulness. The safest and sanest of these forms of forgetfulness is our friend, sleep, who knits up the raveled sleeve of care and tries, by giving the stage of the mind over to the subconscious manager to further our supreme ambitions. It takes the teamwork of the conscious and subconscious minds, working in harmony both in sleep and in waking hours, to achieve anything great in life. If we sleep too much, we hold back the other very necessary part of the team, the conscious mind. As we explained in the lesson on mental miracles, Whenever you are in trouble of any kind, you tend to relieve the conscious mind of the strain, to lose consciousness. Some types find this relief in long nights of sleep or frequent naps. Others seek it in various kinds of drink, the same types invariably choosing drinks furnishing the same kind of reaction. Others seek forgetfulness in excitement, entertainment, society, travel, and the hundreds of other modern attainments. Any person's craving for the various aids to forgetfulness is proportioned to the degree that reality, actuality, the facts of life, are disappointing or disillusioning him. Thus, the man who is discharged, jilted, financially ruined, or worried takes to drink if he is of a certain type. If he is of another type, this same disappointment turns him toward the deep oblivion brought by drugs in which case he will again choose the particular kind of drug that appeals to his particular temperament. 
Every suicide is committed in the effort to escape reality. The fact that the rich, beautiful, and apparently happy destroy themselves shows how little we know of the inner facts of any other human being's life. That dope and drug fiends are often sensitive, keenly intellectual, and idealistic individuals is not accidental. Such organisms, for a combination of reasons, find the harshness of reality too awful to bear. For these reasons, we are short-sighted and narrow when we blame or despise the person who resorts to any of these things. He is in trouble. What he needs and deserves is our sympathy and understanding. Success, as each individual sees it, comes from the materialization of his supreme subconscious wish. The man who makes a million but who has missed the one big thing he wanted does not consider himself successful. But the one who wanted only to make money says when he does it, I have succeeded. Success is, after all, a matter of personal viewpoint. You may not know what any given individual's standard of success or happiness is, but there is one way in which you can tell with absolute certainty whether he is coming up to the standard he has set for himself. And that is by noting how much or how little of his time he gives to things that bring mental oblivion. The man who is achieving his supreme subconscious wish is so happy in the realization of life that he feels little need of any kind of mental oblivion. Facts gathered over large areas and through long periods of time concerning the life of men and women in all countries and all ages show that sleep is an instinct, just as is eating or sex, and that it is resorted to as are other instincts, in the degree as other instincts are undeveloped or unexpressed. Because sleep makes us harmless instead of harmful, as some of the other instincts do, society has smiled upon it and encouraged it, unless it is carried to excess, in which case society, feeling itself endangered by it, will criticize it and apply the much-feared appellation lazy to whoever overindulges in it. Carried to excess, Sleep is as reprehensible as the excessive expression of any other instinct, but deserves more consideration at our hands even in its excess than we have been inclined to give, for no individual anesthetizes his senses save when those senses are suffering. As man learns more and more how to coordinate his two minds, he will be more and more successful and happy. As more and more men and women emulate in their lives the perfect coordination of power seen in Edison, they will more and more emulate his four hours of sleep. And, ages hence, when we have learned how to live, the instinct of withdrawal from reality, which came down to us from the ages when reality was almost unbearable, will fade away. When that time comes, there will be no beds, no skyscrapers honeycombed with bedrooms in which living men retire for hours from reality, and we will use constructively the third of our lifetime, which we now spend in sleep. Will you make a success of your job? The answer to this big question must have dawned on you while you have been reading this lesson. At least it has given you such insights into the real reasons for your own successes and failures as you never had before. It must be clear to you now that the things at which you failed were things which, for some reason, lacked the complete cooperation of your subterranean, subconscious forces. 
It is these things, and not just hard work, that make any undertaking a success. It must be equally clear to you why your own triumphs and those of other people often came from less work than you had devoted to the thing that failed. You now know why, in the moment of winning, you could scarcely realize that the winner was really you. You also know why you often felt you really didn't deserve such a lot of credit as people gave you. That the person who did this successful thing was not you, but someone working through you. Someone bigger, stronger than yourself. But to get back to the big question, will you succeed? You will succeed provided your supreme subconscious wish is for success. If your deepest, most absorbing desire is success, nothing under heaven can keep it from you. If your supreme wish is for something else than success, you will achieve that something else. If it is for mediocre success, you will achieve mediocre success. If it is for supreme, sublime success, you will get it. You will get it because it would then be your supreme subconscious wish. How that wish is to be attained will be made clear in the next lesson, a lesson containing hitherto unpublished and until very recently unknown laws of the most vital import to every human being. What, more than anything else in the world, do you want out of life? The answer you make in your secret soul to this question determines with utter, inexorable certainty what you are going to get. Not the details, they don't count, but ultimately, eventually, in your life as a whole. In this lesson is published for the first time, the most recent and by far the most startling psychological discovery concerning the real secret of human happiness that has been made in the history of scientific research. It will show you, to your complete satisfaction, what has been holding you back and how to take your foot off the brake if you really desire to do so. It is going to take the props from under some of your pet alibis, but if you are the honest seeker after truth, which your study of mental analysis implies, you will be glad to part with them in return for the great self-revelation and self-realization this lesson gives you. This lesson will show you, with intense clarity, why you have lost many things you tried to get. It will show you where the fault lay and where it came from. It will show you who was to blame and why. It will show you how that person was to blame for your not accomplishing the thing you attempted. It will show you exactly what stood in your path and who put it there. It will show you how to take obstructions away from your path in the future if you really desire to be free of them. It will also show you why and how others have failed. This lesson will show you why you succeeded when you succeeded. It will show you why you seem to do the biggest things most easily. Why you had, through it all, a sense of not really doing it yourself, but of being instrument, as it were, of a person bigger and stronger than yourself. It will show you why you lived through some of your greatest tragedies in spite of the conviction that you never would. It shows you the real, inner secret of all your own accomplishments and those of other people. It shows you the great law which has brought every personal success, every personal achievement, 
and every personal triumph that has ever been accomplished in this world. It shows why you always find the time, strength, and opportunity to do certain things and none for certain others. Why you give up certain ambitions and reconcile yourself to going without all kinds of things you had supposedly paramount in your life while clinging tenaciously to others which your common sense tells you are inconsequential. It shows you why the people of the supposedly greatest gifts fail, while others, who started with few, go to the top of life's ladder. It shows why you have permitted some of your own greatest talents to lie undeveloped while working hard to succeed at something for which you seem to have no ability. You have sometimes wondered why you simply could not go on with a thing which you knew was for your own best good. You have marveled at your capacity for making the same kind of mistake over and over. You have become disgruntled and often discouraged with yourself for the inexplicable reactions certain things, and especially certain work, cause in you. You have thought of all these and a thousand other self-mysteries and either arrived at some theory that appeals to your particular type and temperament, or you have given it up thinking, and perhaps saying, there is no accounting for us. A human being is a conglomeration of enigmas. The average individual is like a child seeing a moving picture for the first time. He sees an amazing, mystifying, myriad-sectioned drama unwind before his eyes. To him, it is the realest of reality. All is as it seems on the screen, and all arises and returns to the unseen, the mysterious. The average unthinking individual lives in a maze of moving mysteries which he calls his life. The unexpected is always happening to him. The expected and longed for happens, but seldom, and when it does, he cannot see how nor why, so is unable in any way to repeat it. He no more attempts to understand the laws back of his life dream than the three-year-old child at the movies attempts to figure out how pictures are made. He swallows it, enjoys what he can, registers verbal disapproval when things go wrong, but he sits and takes it like the babe in the theater. He feels helpless, often hopeless, but it is too big a tangle to understand or straighten out. So there he waits, watching his life story play itself out as it will. This lesson is to prove to you that your life movie doesn't just happen, that you are not at the mercy of fate, that you and you alone make your own life drama. It is going to show you that the play in which you are acting the life picture you see unwinding before your eyes each day is based on laws as sane, simple, and scientific as those back the making of a motion picture. It is going to do for you, in explanation, what we would be doing for the child if we took him out of the theater, whose pictures he had always supposed to be magic made, and showed him the camera, the studio, the actors and actresses, the stages and directors, scenarios, lighting effects, the mass of natural forces through whose application every picture is made. We hope this lesson will do for you much more than that. We shall show you how certain everyday, ever-operative, natural laws are behind every individual drama, how everything in your life is made, directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously, by you, through your use or misuse of these same natural laws.
we are going to show you how your pictures are made. The machinery back of every movie you have ever put on in your own life. Why you played the role you did and why you are playing, at this moment, the very part you are. It is our sincere hope that you who read these pages will, from this day onward, apply these laws in your own life. For by doing so, you shall attain your deepest and dearest desires. We, like the babe at the movies, live in the delusion that things are only what they seem, a maelstrom in which we are caught, a moving mirage that whirls and swirls and carries us on against our will. Science shows us that everything in the universe has a cause and that the same cause always and invariably brings the same results. Nothing just happens. There are no accidents. All occurs in accordance with divine, unchanging law. The world we live in today is exactly the same world the caveman dwelt in. But civilized man, through a working knowledge of law, has brought out of these unseen and hitherto undreamed of forces the things that make life livable, beautiful, uplifting. The caveman called the lightning a god of wrath and fell down in fear when his flashes illuminated the sky. Civilized man, through a study and understanding of law, brings that same force to bear on his problems and with it lights the world, heats his home, travels around the globe and talks, without wires, from one end of the earth to the other. In the last 20 years, science has been discovering that human health and disease human success and failure, human happiness and unhappiness, all the problems of human life are equally controlled by law, that man is a part of, not apart from, natural and divine law, that the laws of the mind, body, and spirit of every individual are ever operating and are ever bringing to him, in exact accordance with these laws, the things that come out in his life. Every man and woman has many conscious wishes. They are in the surface mind, the busy brain that handles the affairs of the moment and the events of the day. You have a conscious wish to arrive at the office in time to look through your mail before the opening hour. You have another conscious wish to remember a fact, statement, the amount of that check you must write. You have thousands of these conscious wishes during the course of a busy day. They pass into and out of your mind without much ado. As a result of your training, education, environment, experience, type, personality, and several other things, you have acquired certain conscious standards of what you ought to do and be and accomplish, of what you owe the world, society, and your fellow man, of the right and square way to treat people, of honesty, justice, fair play of how much and how well a man ought to work to get on in life, of how you ought to act under all conditions, of what you ought to acquire, achieve, accomplish, of the heights to which you ought to rise, the influence you ought to wield, the prestige you ought to have, the good name, fame, or glory you ought to win. In short, you have builded into that conscious mind of yours whole sets of ironclad ideals which you aspire to live up to. Whether you have lived up to them in the past has depended on just one thing which you had in those past years. Whether you are living up to them now and in what proportion 
all depends on how much of that same thing you have today. Whether you will, in the coming years, live up to these standards, achieve these things you consciously strive for, will depend upon how much you understand, amend, and utilize that same something. That thing which determines it all, which is actually directly or indirectly every act of your life, is your supreme subconscious wish. One of the most recent and revolutionizing discoveries of science is that every human being has, in addition to these temporary conscious wishes and conscious standards, one wish which overtops all others, a wish which is often secret and sometimes submerged, but which saturates his subconscious mind. This wish is never for one specific thing, nor does it deal with details. It is not for certain things, nor even for specific people in our lives, but for a condition in life, an environment, a kind of expression, the untrammeled satisfaction of a basic instinct, the achieving of a great ambition in some general direction, the attainment of a beautiful character, the acquirement of riches, or the winning of an immortal name. And sometimes, in fact, all too often, the secret supreme wish is for none of these uplifting things, but for others of a far different nature. The second great discovery, which is revolutionizing the science of psychology, is that every human being builds his life around his supreme subconscious wish. Some build their lives around the supreme wish consciously, others unconsciously or subconsciously. But each is building every year, every day, every hour, directly or indirectly, toward the gratification of his deepest desire. The average individual has never heard of this urge at whose behest he lays practically every plan of his life. He is often unaware of this intense yearning, which dictates the direction of his energies, predetermines the trend of activities characterizing every week of his life, which actuates the manifold expressions of himself and which prejudices, pulls, and pushes him in directions serving its purpose. But this does not alter the fact that it is there and that it wields an influence upon our lives which, in the end, makes or mars them. We often wonder why a promising man with brains, education, advantages, good looks, and every possible chance makes such a mess of his life. Especially do we wonder why this intelligent individual should make the same kind of mistakes over and over, permitting this one species of weakness to ruin his existence. He is so unusual in so many ways, we say. Why can't he see that it is only this one thing that is wrecking his chances? Isn't it too bad that a fine young man like that, with such splendid qualities, should permit one little thing to destroy him? In every such case, and there are many of them, the individual's supreme subconscious wish is for something which the giving in to this weakness brings him. A woman who was well-known as a writer of superior magazine articles was an outspoken radical. She lived in a suffrage state, so had a vote and cast it consistently for a radical ticket. She believed in birth control and declared that if she ever married, she would not feel entitled to bring children into the world, not only because it was, as she was fully convinced, too cruel to give them a chance, 
But because her mother had died in an insane asylum and her father in a tuberculosis hospital, she lived in Arizona herself as a result of a prolonged siege of the disease, which had taken away one lung, but which seemed now to be under control. This woman had a most unusual mind. Her conversation was as interesting as a play. Her writing was scintillating and extraordinarily clever. She was widely read, a deep student, and a most convincing speaker on these very subjects upon which she held such radical views. She finally married. Her husband did not care for children. But once every year, for 12 years now, she has presented him with a son or daughter, and once with both. All her friends say, what in the world has come over Agnes? What became of her convictions? The answer is not far to seek. Agnes, under all her conscious attitudes, had a deep, devouring, desperate desire. Far back of and behind and beyond these surface things, there was a supreme subconscious wish. That wish was to be the mother of a large family. Reason, common sense, horse sense, and her sense of justice told her that she, in whose veins ran two taints, had little right to jeopardize innocent lives. Intelligence and human sympathy told her that life, never easy for the strongest, would be cruelly savage to the handicapped. Study and thought convinced her conscious mind that one hampered as she was might better be educating the world towards social and political betterment than adding to its population. But the moment opportunity offered, away went every conscious conviction, every standard of the years, and in came the subconscious urge. It took possession, or rather, it kept possession. For it was the working out of that old subconscious longing which caused her to marry at all. And this brings us to the third great new discovery. This new, hitherto unpublished and most far-reaching of all discoveries concerning the laws of human life is that every human being gets his supreme subconscious wish. At first glance, he may question this, but five minutes of honest self-inventory serves to convince every person that it is literally, utterly true. You, for instance, may say, that can't be true. Why, I wanted a college education more than I wanted anything else in the world. I have wanted it for years, and I have failed to get it. You are sincere in saying this, just as you have been sincere all the time in telling the same thing to yourself and your friends. But if you will look deep into your own heart, you will find that at least one other desire, perhaps a dozen of them, takes precedence in your secret list of this desire for a college education. You may never have stopped to think of it before, and the probabilities are you have said it so often you fully believe it. But when you come right down to it, there are several things you want more than you want that college education. Yes, I know, something was always happening to prevent you from going to college. There always is something happening to prevent things, and it prevents them too. All but your real wish. When things happen to that, you go right over them. You find a way out. You do something to counteract it. You invariably ride over the difficulty and do it. During the past 10 years, at least 100 men and women have told us the only thing on earth they had wanted most was to go to college 
but it had been impossible. What were the psychological effects? One young man who had vehemently denied at first that he had ever desired anything as much as a college education finally said that he believed he wanted to get married more than he wanted an education. This was the reason for his marrying instead of going to college. Another who was certain that nothing had ever superseded his desire to go to college realized that what he had really wanted most was to travel. He hoped to go abroad and had decided a college education would help to give him a keener appreciation of the things he expected to see in his travels. When he was given a position which took him several times a year to London and Paris, he subconsciously gave up the college idea, though continuing consciously to think and to declare that it was a great disappointment. These are not deliberate deceptions we practice upon ourselves and our friends. We know very little about our real selves until we study the human sciences. The result is that only an occasional individual ever meets the stranger that lives in his skin. A man once said to us, I cannot believe that every person gets his supreme subconscious wish. I have loved a woman for eight years. My subconscious wish was to have her. I haven't gotten her. And what is more, it doesn't look as though I ever would. Yet I have tried with all my might to win her. We explained to him this other great law. Our supreme subconscious wish is never for any specific thing or person, but for a condition, a certain avenue of self-expression. The supreme wish saturates the subconscious mind, but the subconscious mind never knows nor cares anything about details nor the fine points concerned with methods. All it knows is overwhelming desire for a certain kind of satisfaction for your personality as a whole. The conscious mind supplies methods, means, the vehicles for realizing these subconscious desires. These two great minds of ours may be linked to the equipment of a freight train. The subconscious mind supplies the steam, the going power, the forces necessary to your arriving at a certain destination. It is unlike steam in this, however. It knows the general direction in which you want to go and is concentrated on getting you there. But it allows the engineer, your conscious mind, to select the crew, the paraphernalia for the journey, and to take whichever one of the tracks it prefers. But it gives you no peace save when you are traveling in the general direction of its and your subconscious aim. It stays out of sight, but goads, drives, and lashes you whenever you start down a sidetrack and gives you its full help only when you get back on the main line. What this man really wanted was not this, nor one specific woman, but some general kind of self-expression for his personality, which he considered the possession of her would make possible for him. In other words, she was what every individual is to the subconscious mind of his lover, the means to an end. No adult man or woman lives who subconsciously loves another man or woman. The subconscious knows no individuals as such. It is not concerned with the personnel of anything, only with results. Your subconscious knows no one but you. It has no desire. No religion, no aim, no interest, save the accomplishment of your 
wants. You are its world, its master, its adored. The result of the universe is, to your subconscious mind, only a place in which you function, a stage on which you act, the world in which you live and move and have your being. Where do I come in is the first question your mind puts to everything you ever hear, everything that is broached to you, everything that comes within the range of your consciousness. If you cannot see wherein you are going to get self-expression of some sort, you stay away from it. Even our most generous acts are performed more for our own self-expression than for the persons for whom we do them. The man who gives his money to the poor and dies penniless has not really sacrificed himself. His supreme subconscious desire was for that kind of self-expression. He was happiest that way and did it because he could find more happiness in that than in keeping it for himself. In other words, he bought with his money the thing that appealed most to him. And though in so doing, he proved himself a higher, finer nature than the average, and deserves our admiration and respect as a superhuman, he is not to be credited with self-sacrifice. What we call self-sacrifice is always the sacrifice of something the individual wants for something he wants more. Therefore, it is not self-sacrifice at all. The big thing we must not overlook in this new understanding is that the individual who prefers to use his money this way who gets his greatest happiness out of helping others is a highly evolved individual, far ahead of his time, spiritual in the highest, finest sense, sympathetic, superhuman. You need not regret that you can no longer credit him with self-sacrifice. This kind of human being is far more admirable than one who would reverse God's first law of self-preservation. We know it is God's law, because he puts it into every living organism. Your first duty is to yourself, to make yourself the highest, best, biggest, and broadest being you can be. And the proof of this lies in every living thing in the universe. You can never help humanity very much till you can walk alone. Your first duty, therefore, to the world and to yourself is to learn to stand alone. Don't lop and lean and loll on other people. First, develop your own backbone. Then, as you go along, help everybody, inspire everybody, uplift everybody, and don't forget to start. Don't make the mistake that thousands of well-meaning people have of waiting till your own life is perfect before beginning to give others a lift. You will pass this way but once. So scatter real help as you travel, but keep your life belt on. Keep your head up, your eyes open, your heart gentle, but keep climbing. If you would like to see what a great thinker says about these real human motives, read the book Mark Twain wrote and which he directed should not be published till five years after his death. What is man? In it, he shows you, in better words than we can, how every act of human being is for the contentment of his own spirits.